you had some topics for this evening. Do we want to well, dive um, into that? We so? can. Oh, I'm gonna sneeze. I think. Um, <laughs> bright light. No. We know what the intro to this episode is gonna be. <laughs> Hey listeners, welcome back to the Bits of a Tangent podcast, where we bring you mind-bending ideas from science, philosophy, AI, medicine, and whatever else we're thinking about at the time. I'm Jared, a medical student with a special interest in machine learning, and as always, I'll be joined by the great and powerful Jean-Luc. He's not just a data scientist, he's a great friend, a well of good ideas, and of even better conversations. This week, we're talking about genetic algorithms, the basics of how they work, and what they could be used for, before diving into a discussion about exercise physiology, how to get the most out of a workout, and why more really is less. Links, articles, and everything else we mentioned in the episode can be found in the show notes, so please go check those out. And as always, we do appreciate your feedback, so write to us at podtangent at gmail.com or get in touch on Twitter at podtangent and just let us know what you think. And so, without further ado, here's the episode of Bit of a Tangent. How's your week been, sir? Um... Yeah, it's been it's been full. I've been uh, it's been work and then working on my my research as well. Um, so I actually just decided to uh, to stop fiddling um, with technicalities of things and just throw a whole lot of compute at the problem and see if if that uh, got me closer to uh, the direction I'm working with the research. Um, so I just I just signed up for uh, Amazon Web Services and just bought a whole bunch of ridiculous instances that that i ran for uh, a few hours each um yeah so that was interesting it's also really cool like a uh, learning experience figuring out how amazon uh, like sort of structures all their services and how you can sort of save uh, a bit on some things and uh, then spend your spend your money on on the things that are really important to the kind of computation you're doing all right so i learned a bit there um threw some money at the situation um, it's helped me reach more uh, definitive conclusions. They're just not the conclusions I was hoping for. Mm. But um, yeah, you can't uh, you can't fake truth or reality. And I think that's the whole point of scientific research. So you know, it wouldn't be very useful if I came up with the wrong conclusion that just made me sound like I'd done something more clever than I had. Um, but obviously, there's the inbuilt, uh, the, the, there's the internal human uh, desire to to just get the thing done and have it be a success and get the paper written up as quickly as possible. Um, and so I think, yeah, part of, part of being an ethical and intellectually honest scientist would include constantly checking yourself for those biases. Um, I, th I think it's probably appropriate just to get you to outline what your research is. Just, yeah. You know, it so, sounds like um, we leaving half the story out but that is that is very true yeah um so without going into too much uh detail unless we decide to um yeah the gist of it is that there is a a drug called warfarin that is used as a, a blood thinner and uh, this is useful because blood clots are a problem in a lot of people especially the elderly and uh some you know have very like 10 percent of people over the age of 80 are taking warfarin um so, uh, so, yeah, so a large, oh, large percentage of people. And um, the problem with warfarin is that although it's incredibly effective at thinning the blood, it is um, very sensitive dosage-wise. You have to get the dose just right. Um, and if you thin the blood too much, then the person will just have severe hemorrhaging. Um, you create and, rat poison. It, it literally, it, it initially was a rat, a rat poison before it was tested on humans, which is just... <laughs> Phenomenal. Yeah, I discovered this when when uh, when researching to to do a presentation on the 
on the research findings, I was getting some background and it, it was a rat poison. And then someone was like, Hey, what if we gave this to humans in lower dosages? <laughs> uh, yeah. So you, so you don't want to, you don't want to over, over thin the blood because then you hemorrhage and die. And if you don't want to under thin it, because then the original blood clotting is still an issue. So you need to get that right. But the other problem is that it is incredibly specific to individuals based on genetics and diet and body size and age and various things. Um, and so coming up with a way to determine what dose to give a human um, that you're trying to get into a stable therapeutic range of uh, blood clottiness um, we'll go with um, is uh, is a challenge. And so and so yeah, that, there's always a quest to improve the model. So there's a publicly available data set um, which, for machine learning standards, is puny. It's about six thousand uh, subjects, and there's missing data everywhere. So a lot of the work is just uh, finding clever ways to impute information that's missing. Mm. Um, so there's an interesting stuff you interesting stuff you can do with missing genetic information where you can uh, infer what the information would have been, like the consensus would have been for a specific gene based on the SNPs that were logged um, and other factors about like racial background and things like that. So you can actually, you, you know, normally you would have to drop it down to like 2,000 of the 5,000 data points. But if you do some of these fancy imputation techniques, um, you can keep it at like 5,000, um, which is really useful. Is it, is it, I mean, this maybe is going to bring us into too deep a technical level, but is there, is there some sort of further augmentation there where you like randomize over the plausible set of different ways that you could uh, infer the genome to be there and then like, get some sort of average look? Or, I mean, that might be, too much yeah, to talk about. There's I'll, a whole I'll bunch of you. different ways you can do it. The, 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 the thing that's uh, unique about this case, in terms of the imputation at least, <clears throat> is that there's pretty good uh, clinically guided um, ways to impute it. So you don't just do it like you would uh, in, with statistical methods. Um, or you can do that for some of the things, but uh, you can... Um, so like, uh, a good example is that if, you, if you're trying to impute some continuous variable... Um, a decent way to do it would be to just take the mean of the other variables in the data set, right? All right. Um, so if, if you've got a whole bunch of humans and you want to figure out the missing height, you could just take the mean height of the others. Um, you're right, which seems reasonable. It's better than putting in zero because <laughs> very few people are zero centimeters high, but most people are reasonably close to the mean, so you won't be off by all that much. But a better way to do it is if you have their weight information and um, maybe some other some other indicators, and you can get a much better sense of how tall someone is if you also know how much they weigh, right? So mm. you can you can almost use like logistic regression to predict the missing values, and then when you've got the missing values in the complete data set, which is like the majority of the work of the project, then you get onto the really interesting part, which is now trying to actually use various statistical and eventually machine learning techniques to predict the dose that you should give a patient given what you know about them. Um, and so that was, that was the project. Um, and the part that's really interesting that may be worth um, investigating for publication is using what's called genetic programming. Uh, it's also sometimes known as evolutionary algorithms. And it's a sort of way of replicating uh, how nature naturally uh, evolves uh, individuals that are better fit to their environment and using that to optimize some kind of computation um, or some kind of algorithm, or in this case, some kind of predictive model. So instead of me sitting away trying every possibility or uh, getting smarter and figuring out the best way to do it um, just from pure first principles, I um, instead just simulated a process of evolution whereby the most accurate models survived and mixed their predictive abilities with other accurate models and produced a new generation and so on. Um, and that's, this is the part that requires all the compute that I purchased. So yeah, that's, uh, that's, there's, there's, there's a few layers to it. Um, there's, there's several, uh, mm. deep, you might say, or maybe you could just talk about the adjacent areas of relevance yeah. for this. So I think, yeah, cause, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the background of applying it to Warfarin was, uh, you know, interesting in terms of the data sets that were available um, and how it was organized for my, my project. But um, in terms of the uh, evolutionary algorithms, which I think is the really fascinating part of this, the, those um, have seen applications in a wide number of fields. Um, everything from uh, 
I've, I've seen something where they were applied to uh, uh, evolving uh, improved designs for um, uh, wind turbines to generate electricity in, in, um, in wind farms. Um, mm. So instead of just going with the standard sort of human symmetrical, you know, they, they all look exactly the same. It's like it's three reasonably thin blades and they're just really long and they have a certain curve and a certain like leaf shape almost to them. Um, but uh, this this um, algorithm evolved things that looked really weird and unnatural and made no sense at all, but were mo- like marginally more efficient than most designs that humans produce, um, at least in, in simulation. I don't think they ever got built. Um, so that was like one that I, uh, that I've seen that I thought was really cool. Um, but there, there have been a few other applications in and all sorts of things from like astronomy to aspects of mathematics that I have just no, no grasp on. Um, <laughs> and in, and in, in various other domains that, uh, relate back to more, uh, natural or real world data. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a handful of really cool studies that, that look into that. Um, and what's, what's, what I really like about it, a nice way to, um, sort of talk about it in the context of the terminology that a, a mathematician or a computer scientist uh, would use is um, an evolutionary algorithm is, is sort of a in-between point between a random walk and an exhaustive search. So oh, you're going to have to explain both those terms, um, I think. So I'm be... definitely going to do that. So uh, a random walk would be to just try stuff and see what works. Right, so you you got a whole bunch of switches in front of you. You don't know what any of them do, so you just start hitting them randomly in random combinations, just like a just like a kid playing around with something, um, and and you just see what happens, and you observe the results, and you start to sort of get an idea for what's going on. That that's what a random walk is. It's just you just you pick at random, you change things, and you observe the result, and you would mm. hope that you eventually stumble upon something useful. Um, and this this is you know, generally speaking, a bad approach. Um, but there are cases where you can't just go and figure things out the hard way. And so a random walk is a decent strategy. Um, so like a, a sort of related example for this would be what's known as like a Monte Carlo simulation named after the, you know, the gambling Casino. capital of the world. Right. Um, <laughs> and so, and, and so the, the, the concept of this is it's like the roulette wheel. It's, it's, it's just you're using random chance as part of simulations. So these are very popular with like financial models because the underlying sort of variables are so complex that trying to model them explicitly would be computationally infeasible. But if you can just fiddle with things almost at random, uh, it, it gives you a decent sense of how much fluctuation you might see and how things might go. Um, so that's that's a random walk. Then an exhaustive search is... is but simpler, that's just trying every possible combination, right? So if you were trying to crack a combination lock, um, which probably should be called a permutation lock, you um, you just start at 0, 0, 0, 0, and then you go to 0, 0, 0, 1, and 0, 0, 0, 2, and all the way up until 9, 9, 9, 9, and hopefully somewhere along the line it unlocks. Um, and uh, yeah, as anyone who's uh, <laughs> stayed uh, over a long weekend in a boarding school with friends who have combination locks on their lockers with no, it's a, uh, it's a slow and soul crushing process trying to break someone's combination lock just to, uh, just to leave a, a, a funny note or something in their locker. But yeah, that would be an exhaustive search. And, uh, that will, that guarantees you will find the answer eventually, but that eventually might be, you know, beyond the heat death of the universe. Um, so what's nice about evolutionary algorithms or genetic programming is you're using this concept of natural selection, which is individuals getting um, improving over time in terms of their fitness for their environment or how good they are at surviving in their niche. And you take that from the biological world and you sort of apply it inside a, a computational model. So what that would mean is you have a whole bunch of algorithms that are represented by like essentially a sequence of switches so like a a string of binary information and then you flip a whole bunch of the switches at random which is where the random element element comes into play and then you test them and see which one's better and then those ones survive to the next generation but then the interesting part is how you blend them together so you you kind of let them sexually reproduce 
Yeah, I mean, so are there like obvious analogs to chromosomes it's or like a, it's well, exactly, well-preserved structures? Yeah, the the metaphor is is really good. So, so some of the most popular methods are exactly like you mentioned, how chromosomes um, sort of cross over. So when when it when it comes to uh, human reproduction, you know, all the chromosomes will line up, and you have what's called crossing over, where you know you'll have all the um, the father's chromosomes on the left and the mother's chromosomes on the right and they'll sort of pair up and then bits of each one will will switch between the two so that you get some random shuffling on the chromosome and this is very effective because it 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 prevents you from having um like devastating diseases that just wipe out your whole population if you didn't have uh, crossing over and it also gives the opportunity for new never before seen combinations that may be very advantageous so what you do is you literally take the two like sets of switches um, or you can imagine them as two strings of binary characters and you just cross them over and the amount of crossing over can be determined by like a parameter that you set so if you set that high it'll happen a lot and you'll get a lot of variation or you can set it very low and it will be much slower then you also get like random mutations where you literally just will randomly flip a bit every now and then in those strings and those bit strings and so that you can also control with the mutation rate so the analog um, to natural evolution is usually very very strong um, and that's why it's really cool is because you can go okay cool I have some understanding of how natural evolution works um, instead of me you know doing really complicated statistical techniques to try and optimize my models I'm just going to use my intuitions about natural evolution um, and apply them to producing better models so if you have some good intuitions about how population size or mutation rate or selective pressures might influence the fitness of a population, you can use that and apply it to training better models. So what I've spent a lot of time thinking about in the past week is sort of relationships and attraction and honesty and how this relates to um, being able to communicate, right? And, and there's sort of two aspects that you need to communicate here. There is communicating intention and desire for someone. And then there's being able to communicate who you are, right? Your identity, your values, your boundaries and barriers, and what's important to you. And so those have been of particular interest for me in, in the past sort of week. Um, which makes it sound terribly short term. <laughs> I should probably be more concerned by that sentence. Um. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, the, the second point that you touched on was um, sort of having a coherence between your or your identity or internal values and your actions, right? So you, you, you want the way you feel and think and view the world to be evident in your behavior. Right, because that signals to people around you what your intentions are and what your values are, right? Because there's like there's nothing weirder than when you know you've known someone for ages, um, like outside of romantic relationships, let's say, just like the person you've been friends with for ages, and then you find out that they have some deeply held value or belief that you totally would never have predicted, right? And it's it's just it's just not modeled in the at least the ident the the, the actions that you see. Of that person, right? So, so maybe it is expressed sometimes, but <clears throat> you've just never seen it, right? So, a, a, a useful thing. I mean, if, if you look at when you make small talk with a person, right, and this is relevant to all sorts of relationships, from literally everything from you know networking um, in a sort of career environment, all the way through to to meeting new people with potential romantic intentions, right? So, you make small talk. You you start off with really safe topics, generally. Um, unless you're going for sort of alternative strategies. But but for the most part, you start <laughs> with very safe topics. So like the current situation that you find yourself in, uh, the weather, the, you, know, you you would start with something quite, uh, quite safe. And then what you do is you sort of slowly start to like nudge things in the, in the direction of, of topics that interest you or might be more controversial. And you see how the other person responds. And then you, direct things away from unsafe territory and into territories of, of common interest and common agreement, right? And so it's like you can sometimes find someone who you meet for the first time and very quickly you like, oh, you feel like you have a whole lot in common and you can speak for a whole evening. 
Um, and then you may not see them for a while and you find out later on that they, you know, they have this whole other life that doesn't match you or your interests or your beliefs or anything whatsoever, right? It's just that you both steered the conversation very naturally and very well into all these places where you do have overlap, right? Because people don't like to disagree. And I think it's part of our evolutionary and our ancestral um, background that that social cohesion and uh, social security um, in the true sense is um, <laughs> so important to us and to our survival, right? So you, you don't want to upset people, right? So it's the last thing that, that we want to do. And we're hardwired to find similarity and common ground. So if you if you look at that, what we're doing the whole time is we're sort of signaling what our beliefs and our intentions are. All right. It's a very Robin Hanson view about signaling. And maybe that yeah, exactly. Nice. Right. So it, it you, you very much want to signal coherently. So you, you don't want to, you know, be out there talking about how you, I don't know, believe that. Earth is flat. Yeah. Santa is uh, putting chemicals in the water that are turning the frogs into little elves or <laughs> something, right? Um, Subtle riff. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> keeping up with the Joneses, of course. But, uh, but you, but you, you, you also don't want to be like offending the person, right? So like yes. launching straight in at, at a, you know, maybe like a family get together where there's some cousins who you barely know or something like that. Launching straight into controversial topics, you know, things like, atheism although that's much less controversial nowadays but but yeah things like that or politics or anything that's kind of classically divisive would would uh, would not be a good strategy so right so when you signaling you want to at the same time for your own benefit be signaling truthfully because you want to filter out people and conversations and interactions that don't hold as much value to you yes um, Right. But at the same time, you also don't want to just be like an asshole and have everyone hate you. Right. If you happen to be the one person in the world that has a particular kind of belief, which I think is difficult, but and you open with that line every time, you're not going to be very popular. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's a very interesting game to play. And then on top of that, you have all these other layers that we add to make it more difficult. Right. Now you add nonverbal signaling. And this can be more powerful than the verbal signaling um you add appearance and then you add a whole bunch of like mind altering substances onto this as well like you've got at the very minimum a lot of times alcohol or or glucose sugar yeah yeah right Right. exactly right like (laughs) like like how how often like how often have you been to an event where you're meeting people for the first time and there was neither sugar nor alcohol yeah no it's uh it's pretty invasive Presuming if there's any catering, there'll be there'll be something. It's a challenge, right? Because you you want to find common ground and you want to connect with people in a meaningful way, but it must be authentic, right? You shouldn't have to fake beliefs to connect with a person, right? So that that requires a, a very mature way of interacting from both people. And it's difficult because not everyone's going to come at you with that. Um, in return right um and so uh yeah it's yeah, a, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing and i'm i'm more acutely aware of it the older i get because some of the like the best conversations i've had are with people i disagree with completely on so many things but yet the the both parties in the conversation understand that we're not going to agree on even most things but that the conversation still holds benefit to both of us and that the other person can still be a good, decent, interesting, authentic person, right? And, and it's almost the authenticity there is more valuable, right? It, even though it's the source of your disagreement, or as, as in it's, it's, it's where the disagreement lies, the authenticity is more valuable than the agreeing, right? So someone who can authentically disagree with you and not make it a fight is... is a better person or a more enjoyable person to interact with and connect with than someone who just agrees with everything you say, but it's totally farcical. Julia Galef does a great job of uh, framing a lot of the debate she has on her own podcast where she always says, um, seek to explain, not to persuade. Right. And uh, I think as you know, that part of explaining, right, is an honest communication of your beliefs and the sort of, neighboring beliefs that lead you to logically come to that final belief of disagreement 
but uh, so around that now, I guess, I don't know if it's, you know, just me, although I doubt it, but I think there's a lot of people really struggle to communicate these things, which they, they either deeply believe or intend, right? So the intention we can separate out for now, um, but really explain to someone some of the, the either the unintuitive or the slightly stigmatized or the just even sometimes the more complex things we believe, right? That it, it takes a certain energy to explain presents a sort of difficulty and a sort of friction to being authentic uh, in your interactions with people. So I'm almost just curious to ask what sort of heuristics you go on. So how do you deal with trying to be mm. authentic to what you believe and what you value while satisfying the constraints of limited time or embarrassment? Or, or do you even, um, I guess, would, do you think that there's a class of things that you could believe and yet be embarrassed by? And how do you deal with the clash between being authentic versus wanting some sort of level of privacy or, or, or all your beliefs so set or or rather you're so confident that like mm. I shouldn't be embarrassed of what I believe, therefore yeah. I should be able to talk about anything I believe. I think this is particularly challenging for people who are, you know, quite logical or who regard themselves as rationalists and, and especially ones who try and approach perfect Bayesianism. Because you kind of want to believe that, you know, truth and genuine, like accurate ideas and logical sequences of uh of inference will win out but that i mean it couldn't be i wouldn't say it couldn't be further from the truth but it it's it that doesn't align well with how humans actually behave unfortunately maybe um <laughs> the, the jury's still on that there may be some benefits to it right so so what's interesting is that you can you can get a lot of the way, uh, the way, and like I'm by no means an expert on on any of this, but just from observations I've made and things I've read and a few experiences I've had, it seems like as long as you can form a connection with the person, everything else just about that you believe and that you will say and talk about doesn't really matter as much, right? So, two things are like. Properly okay. relevant here. The first is like the halo effect, right? I mean, we any anyone who's read any pop psychology or stuff on how to influence people knows about the the halo effect. It's right. If you if you have one property of a person, a notable one is physical attractiveness, that is remarkable or like outstanding. You will then just infer that. Uh, or assume that all of the other properties about them or many other properties about them are remarkable as well, right? So we perceive more attractive people to be more intelligent. We perceive more intelligent people to be more competent. We, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so we, even, even though it's, it's on unfair grounds and, and the inverse of it is true as well. Like someone who's very unattractive, unfortunately is seen as less competent and intelligent and trustworthy. And, uh, and, and it's, and it's true for multiple properties, but very much so physical ones because a lot of the time when you're meeting someone that's the first thing that you have to go on so like it's really unfortunate but there's only so much you can do about physical attractiveness for now um so like the way you look a signals a lot about you and b might tie into the halo effect right so you can control the things that you can control as as much as possible that helps Right. The more presentable you are, obviously, the more people are going to be warm to you. And, and, and this is true in other regards of the halo effect as well, in terms of being polite, you know, the way you stand, the way you like hold yourself, you know, how punctual you are. All of these sort of things are, are already signaling competence in other areas, even though you haven't exhibited it. Right. So mm. those things sort of get you a foot in the door. Right. And then moving into things where you connect with the person on stuff that is very human and common to all of us gets you a this physical connection it's almost like imagine it like establishing a um, connection like a tcp connection on the internet right it's like you do like the the three-way handshake and all that kind of stuff <laughs> and you uh you're like cool all right we've established this connection and then whatever you sort of transmit is kind of like protected and people will give you they will give you at least some benefit of the doubt i've found 
right? So let me, let me make this more like tangible. So if I come to you and I start like lecturing you about um, transhumanism and why it's the next big thing and why I want to put a, an electronic like chip in your baby's brain and all of these kind of things, really, you're going to be very uh, averse to, to what I'm telling you. But if I come in, I'm dressed uh, well, I'm very polite, I, you know, I give you a bottle of water, we start chatting, we talk about our kids or whatever, cool, your kid, oh, you've just had a new kid, I see your kid struggles with um, this genetic disease and I had a kid who was struggling with that as well um, and we tried all the therapies, none of them worked and it was heartbreaking for me as a parent, um, but then we tried this experimental research <clears throat> and it made this great breakthrough and it's like I have my kid back and all of these sort of things and like maybe you'd really benefit from trying it, like it changed our lives, maybe it can change yours too. Like how much more open is that person going to be to those ideas of putting microchips in their babies or some other kind of like almost transhumanist topic, right? So it's like, it's the difference between when you come, you know, throwing the Bible at someone almost um, versus connecting, establishing the emotional rapport and the empathy, right? Because it's like, if you get to the stage where someone can see all of the factors that went into your experience, like it's, it's very seldom that people would say they would make a radically different decision to you. Right? It's like uh, if, if someone can perfectly empathize with you, they can totally see your point of view and why you did what you did. And they can totally understand and accept that. And, there, and then I've noticed this a lot of the time. Like, there's horrible people who have bad um, ideas about the world, but have a charisma to them. Are inc like inc and, and you almost forgive them for it. Right. It's like it's like take the the uh, the archetype of like the rock star. Like they're, they're just like bad people and they're a disease a lot of the time on the people around them and they just leave mayhem and destruction and they wake. But then they pick up an instrument or they get on stage and they just like transcend their flaws, right? And, and that one aspect of their talent almost just excuses everything else, right? And you almost find yourself forgiving them because the, because the connection that you felt to that like song or to that like energy or whatever it might be was so raw that it allowed you to almost ex uh, excuse everything else. Um, so yeah, I haven't experimentally like validated any of this, but those have just been my observations. That said, a lot of it is difficult to do. I don't know if I've mentioned to you this um, book that we, Josh and I read um, about these sort of super short intense uh, what's, what's the uh, book wait sessions that we are trying to do it's like very book is called body by science um i think one of the authors is uh john little another one is doug mcguff i want to say um but that's probably wrong <laughs> but anyway so they sort of present a huge a fairly wide body of literature on just what exactly do we know about strength training? So for example, they present some data on uh, the fact that multiple sets has not been shown to significantly yeah. increase um, like muscle gain or strength gain compared to just a single set. Um, and of course, all of this is, has to be caveated by like, what does that single set look like? And in the case of body by science, the idea is you do extremely slow reps right? And your metric is not actually the number of reps you do. It's the time under load um, for that exercise. So a, a, a typical rep might look like 10 seconds up mm. and 10 seconds down, but you never deload um, at any point during the set. So you never lock out, um, let's say the elbow, if you're doing some sort of chest press, um, and you never allow, you know, on that retraction you never allow the weight to sink back into your shoulder girdle loaded the whole time uh, and the idea is you then measure the amount of time that you can keep the load on the muscle and the big idea for why you're doing this is because you're trying to um, basically I'm going to say get access to the fastest twitch motor units right so I mean your muscle can be like typed according to the sort of number of fibers and the um, speed of their metabolic pathways and uh, also their recovery time. And just in general, everyday life, you only ever really need to use um, these 
fairly fast recovering slow twitch fibers but if you can tap into these what are called the fast twitch fibers um they are much more powerful uh much greater energy utilization and the only way to do that though seems to be in the situation where you have one exhausted um the capacity so the lifting capacity of the slow twitch muscle uh, motor unit and also in the setting where you have like epinephrine and other sort of stress markers on board. So the work, what like a typical workout will look like is putting like a fairly heavy weight, you know, upwards of 80% of your one rep max and then loading and then just doing super slow reps until you get to muscle failure, um, which usually happens in under three minutes and then moving immediately to the next exercise. Oh, wow. Literally straight away. Not even yeah. So no, no rest at all, and so the entire workout um takes like fifteen minutes. And it's actually embarrassingly short. Yeah, this is what I've been doing for the last maybe year that I, more even. Um, yeah, I think it was about six months after I even started doing significant weight training again. Um, I I sort of just moved to that that sort of protocol. Um, not 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 exactly. So the differences were that um. <clears throat> my my concentric and eccentric would be about five seconds each and i would have like i i would um i suppose deload um at the extremes uh depending on the exercise so like if you're talking about like chest press like i would lock out but i wouldn't like overextend the shoulders um and the idea behind that was just to get um like f the best range of motion that i could um because like mobility is also something that's like quite important to me um so yeah not uh, not quite as, as extreme on the um the sort of slowness of the reps um and right. i was deloading temporarily at the at the extremes exercise dependent um but yeah one one set roughly 80 percent of your one rep max and go to failure every time and it's a beautiful thing because you can you can after a while you learn your body well enough and you can start to feel that point at which the muscle gives up, but then you can feel when you're like, you've got it in almost overdrive um, and you, <laughs> you, you, you're overexerting the muscle. You can, you can, you can start to feel it on muscles that you work regularly enough that point where you can feel you're actually tearing the muscle now. And it's like maybe like three seconds that you actually have of that right at the end. And that's is like where all the value is, right? It's like that, that whole, that whole set is just to get you to the point where everything else is knackered and your your certain fibers are getting worked and you're pushing them beyond their regular capacity and it's damaging them and then you go home and you eat a whole bunch of protein for like two days and it <laughs> and it repairs it and muscle grows and like that's and and it's it's remarkably effective i mean some of the hardest workouts i've ever done were under 20 minutes of like t like walked into walked out of gym was under 20 minutes yeah. The hardest part afterwards is sitting in the sauna for an hour because you want all the uh the hormonal releases that 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 gives you um post workout, right? <laughs> like sitting in a sitting in a in a sauna for an hour after an intense workout is fucking grueling and your I, I don't know, my heart rate just goes through the roof. Yeah, I I I enjoy it though. I think that there are probably some mood benefits and some cardiovascular benefits that make that that worth it. Yeah. I'm keen to know what your um, sort of structure is with the workouts and then with the post-workout sauna as well. Um, so the interesting thing about the, the book is they kind of advocate for this once a week training routine. Oh, so that, that as well. Yeah. Because that, that's the one thing I was going to ask about. Like this method is incredibly effective, but I mean, it destroys me. Yeah. Right. Um, and so A, that means it's hard to build the habit, especially because you, you then do it less frequently and it's, very uncomfortable right so it's it's easy for you to like put it off um and yeah like i genuinely like the next two days i'm usually rendered partially mobile <laughs> even even once i you know get into the swing of training yeah so yeah so tell me about what you do how you get around that and how often you actually employ so um the, their idea is exactly that right that because you are going to positive failure and then a little bit beyond you're, you're supposed to sort of push actively against the resistance uh once you fail to push the weight up it, so i mean this as you say will just destroy you and that is 
you know, desirable in some sense. You want that deep muscle inroading, you know, uh, tearing, uh, stimulated inflammatory processes, uh, whatever. And basically what they spoke about, and they bring up a little bit of evidence, which I would call moderately um, convincing, that mm. the way to then actually get the most out of this is by taking a long enough break between sessions to allow yourself to recover. Um, and so the model they kind of promote is this balance between this catabolic state and then a nice long period of anabolic uh, rest and build up. Mm. And they say that what most people get wrong with strength training is they think, oh, I'm going to go to the gym Monday, then I'm going to do Wednesday, then I'm going to do a Friday and maybe a Sunday like rest day or whatever. I don't know. But um, they say that you know at some point you're going to plateau, you're going to um, end up not being able to lift with as much intensity in each workout. And then they also sort of cite data showing that you end up with similar levels of strength and um, anyway. growth anyway, just by doing this one session and creating it. You know, so like doing one truly intense session, you know, where you are creating that deep, deep, deep level of tissue damage and um, stimulation of repair processes is as good or better than like three sort of moderate level training sessions. So obviously that means that your 20 minutes or whatever has to be really sore. I mean, it's, it's at 110%. Yeah. I mean, I, I tried my first like real session of this, um, on the weekend and it's sore. I mean, yeah, it's, it destroys you. Every, every, every set is agony. And then the, the next few days are agony as well. Yeah. And, and the worst part of it, right, is because you know that your goal is failure, not a certain rep count. Like, once it starts hurting, you know, it's not like you can say, well, once I've counted to five, great, I'm done. Like, you you know that the only thing you can wait for is for that muscle to fail. And and, and I don't know about you, but in my experience, the gap between um, pain starting and failure coming can be uncomfortably long. <laughs> Oh, 100%. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the the thing is you can, I mean, I don't, I, I haven't like got any data on, on the, how much this uh, changes the result, but in terms of just being able to push through, I find if you just put the weight a little higher, you know, roughly 80% of your one rep max, but let's say you go to like 85. Now, your that the, the amount of time that you have to like psychologically push through is, is lower. Yes. Right. And so that said, you know, your, your time under load is also lower. The potential for like injury or poor technique is, is increased. So yeah, it's, it's challenging. And I think it's just like building, just, just being mentally strong is probably the, the, the best way to get around that. Um, but yes, I do go quite heavy on, on, on things like that. So, so that it's, it's usually like six reps and I'm done. Yeah, completely. Because you just physically can't. Yeah. An interesting uh, thing to add there is one of the, there's a few ideas between doing these super slow reps. And one of them, though, is that um, by going so slowly, you are essentially, first of all, like the first few reps will be like the warm up. And mm. you're also really mitigating the potential for injury, right? Because you're going really slowly and like you're going to get to failure, right? Which by definition means that you, know, you can't lift this weight up anymore, right? Um mm. Now, let's just say, let's just assume you're using a machine here, so you're not going to drop some barbell on yourself. Let's just take that risk away. But the idea being that because you're getting to positive failure, you're only ever lifting what you can, by definition, lift. And then once you can't lift that anymore, it's it's not because you've added extra weight. It's because mm. your muscles have failed. And, and those exactly. are two different failure modes. And I think that is a much less risky way to go about it. True. Yeah, so you said so you you're doing it on machines, uh, and so I'm interested to know like what specific, yeah, um, machines you're using and what the sort of structure is, how you split it up, what exercises you're doing. So um, the book recommends what what they call the big five, which is basically um, a pull down, a shoulder press, uh, a chest press, uh, a seated row, and a leg press. So they they recommend doing everything on machines. They recommend the machines for the uh, sort of the brevity that you can get with that, right? You know, it's okay. super easy. Um, but I think there is still some desirable aspect of free weights just in terms of balance and, you know, more muscle groups. And that's something that I'll definitely, I think, get back into because I've, I've 
before I started this new thing, I've typically used free weights and that's mm. fine. But because you want to get through this whole thing, you know, quickly with as few snags as possible, the machines do make that quite clean and easy. Okay. Um, yeah. And they do, I think they're quite conducive to getting that really slow rep in. Yeah. When you isolate, it's much easier to, uh, to just focus on the, you know, the technique in that one motion yeah. um, and, and slow it down and not lose stability. Yeah. And I think the picture they're painting of, of, of what you're, I mean, I think, you know, we know of this general distinction in exercise, right? Which I think Tim Ferriss probably mentioned at least as early as I can remember, you know, between exercise for like function and fitness and then exercise for fun, right? Um, and so they paint a really optimistic picture where you're getting all your functional fitness stuff done in 12 to 20 minutes once a week, right? Which then for me, if let's just say you set aside an hour a day for exercise, paints this really great picture where, you know, all the stuff that you like to do, you know, whether that's walking in the sun or biking or football or whatever it is, now you can do all of that yeah. in those bare hours, you know, whereas exactly. there's not too yeah. much to be gained from like, you know, just repetitively picking up a weight and putting it down for two hours a day. So do they, do they comment on the like cardiovascular aspect of things um, and the sort of mobility aspect? Cause like, you know, you could be doing this 20 minutes, extreme workout once a week and the rest of the time you're just totally sedentary and i feel like that wouldn't be great for you either yeah okay so they actually make a really interesting point on on cardiovascular fitness which i definitely want to talk about but then of course i think it is always just worth bracketing this by saying that sedentary lifestyle is an independent risk factor for a bunch of diseases so yeah if you're planning to say then therefore i can only work out once a week well, sure, it's better than nothing, but you're still, if you sit for eight hours a day and then go and exercise for 30 minutes, that's still not a good thing. Like the exercise does not make up for the 30, for the eight hours. But so, so sedentary, less so, but more the sort of cardiovascular aspect. Of okay. It. So let's talk about the, their view of cardio. So they present one sort of thought experiment, which I found quite compelling or at least interesting. Basically it goes like this, right? They, they ask you to wonder why is it that you know when you walk up like a few flights of stairs versus um a sort of 70 year old right you get up there and you're fine and the 70 year old typically gets up there and is out of breath right yeah and now like i think for the purposes of the thought experiment i think to make it an equal comparison we'll just say the 70 year old is free of of like true heart disease right so we're not like we've got no obstructed valves narrowings that kind of thing right so he has an otherwise intact cardiovascular system it's just that he's 70 years old right? and so their thing then right is okay so why is this person breathless right i mean they've still got lungs they've still got a heart um and in the absence of cardiovascular disease which it which itself could cause fatigue i mean by by no by no means should we doubt that but in this otherwise healthy cardiovascular system, why is it that cardiovascular fitness seems different here, right? And their basically yeah. thinking is that if you sit down and think about it, the idea that your like heart and your lungs get fitter and stronger, I guess it's it's true to an extent. I mean, there's you know you get better um, capillary density and you can maybe shift your cardiovascular physiology quicker. But I mean, the heart itself probably doesn't get much stronger, right? I mean, not in the same way that a bicep or a quadricep gets stronger. They are different sure. kinds of muscle, right? I mean, you don't actually want your your heart to hypertrophy. To swell, yeah. Right? So what they say, though, is one effect that we do know happens in, in people as they age is they get muscle wasting, uh, sarcopenia, right? Um, from some ridiculously sad young age onwards, you lose a percentage of your muscle bulk quite predictably right mm. and so what they say is this older person has obviously a lower muscle bulk and and uh their muscles are also weaker right so mm. now when they have to walk up their stairs right they have to recruit let's just say arbitrarily 80 percent of all these skeletal muscles in their body and those skeletal muscles have to be firing at like 90 percent of their total potential to fire at. so they're doing more they're work. doing well so, so it's the this same amount the of work idea. but Think about then their exertion to achieve the same amount of work is greater. Yeah, because I mean, so you have to let's say just make thirty percent of your muscles fire, right? We're making up these numbers, and they have to fire at like ten percent of their max, right? So, so these two different cardiovascular systems, one has to provide oxygen and blood 
and nutrients for 30% of the body's total capacity. One has to do for 90%. And obviously one of those is a much more demanding task. And so basically their model of cardiovascular fitness puts much more weight on strengthening muscle rather than like this ill-defined notion of a stronger or better heart so why why does um heart rate seem to resting heart rate seem to decrease as someone gets quote-unquote fitter so that's actually a, a good point and probably worth uh thinking about more systematically um if i remember and geez now i have to try and remember um my first year physiology so i think from an exercise physiology point of view you do a bunch of things as you get fitter, like you increase the responsiveness of your tissues to like sympathetic drive. You increase, I think, capillary density. You increase um, your ability to both like deliver and release oxygen in the tissues. This is where like VO2 max sort of comes into play, right? It's like the, the, the rate at which your heart can deliver oxygen to the cells in your body when they need it, right? Like there's some, there's some volume that it will max out at and you can potentially increase that up to some limit yeah and interestingly what you actually want is for your red blood cells to hold on to oxygen less well um so there's a chemical you can manufacture um called uh 2,3 bpg which if it gets stuck in the middle of your hemoglobin um it basically makes your hemoglobin much less sticky for oxygen Okay. Which, Which makes um, it a better transporter. It makes it a better releaser. So because the lungs okay. are really oxygen rich, right? Yeah. Hemoglobin has no trouble picking up the full amount of oxygen. But then when it gets to the tissues, in fact, typically um, in like normal circumstances, four oxygen molecules can bind to a hemoglobin, right? Um, and typically you'll only really release one or two. And then that oh, blood will okay. circulate past the tissues and, mm. and go back around. And that's why you can hold your breath, right? Is Is because blood doesn't lose all of its oxygen in the first pass right i also thought that that was a result of your blood the blood doesn't get saturated with all of the oxygen in the lungs so there's that's the other thing right is your your lungs have a a residual volume of oxygenated air which also will re-oxygenate for a period of time because i mean most of the time we're not going anywhere near a full breath either i mean we're taking like maybe like 15 or 20 percent breath yeah, so you're usually not um, breathing in as deeply and fully as you can. Because there's no need to, because the blood isn't going to be saturated with it anyway. Yeah. So, and immediately, right? So it's easier to breathe shallow and often than deep and uh, infrequently, unless you're a whale. <laughs> yeah. So I guess the other thing that happens, sorry to go all the way back here, is in these athletes, what does happen is they also become better at offloading oxygen at tissues and that also contributes so i think all of these things combine to mean that they can with one heartbeat perfuse and meet the oxygen requirements for their metabolic requirements more so than someone uh, whose oxygen is bound more closely to hemoglobin who's uh, much more uh, insensitive to uh, sympathetic or parasympathetic activity but yeah I'm, i'm definitely feeling a bit cloudy there uh so that seems to make sense right this is all just about how efficiently you can um move molecules around at the end of the day mm. um but yeah like if you if you are stronger and your muscles are more effective you also have less work to do uh, well no you never have less work to do but uh, the relative exertion is lower um, yeah and so you have you require less there's less demand on your resources because that's the thing it's like you're still having to move the same amount of like oxygen or whatever but it's just easier to do yeah it's you know it's it's so, less demand right yeah but so i mean there's there's obviously a lot of value to be had in the cardiovascular exercise um and this high intensity uh training with regards to strength training obviously brings up the question of like high intensity interval training yeah um so i don't know if you're familiar with the um the one minute workout which is sort of the like the, the buzz term created by the the researcher who who looks into high intensity intervals um and the 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 idea of not being that you work out for physically one minute but um that essentially all you need to get the equivalent of um the sort of 30 minutes a day of steady state cardio but in shorter time is three intervals of 20 seconds where you're going at 100 percent capacity um with one minute 30 second breaks in between and a short warm-up and cool down um, and so the 20 seconds cumulatively make up the one minute. That's the actual exertion. The rest is all just sort of coming down from that state. 
So what do they recommend in the book is you should do on your off days? I mean, they're not saying rest means you do no physical activity, but how, how extreme should you go, right? I feel like going for a light jog is much more conducive to regenerating muscle tissue than doing like a hit session of boxing or something, because you feel like you're probably doing some muscle damage there. Um, so they don't actually touch what you should do in your off days uh, as much as perhaps they could, okay. but I think the the general picture you get is one where you're, you're viewing the rest of your week as anabolic rest time and then following the general guidelines of, you know, we should be sitting less, you should be active and walking and taking the stairs, right? Um, yeah. And then I guess it's sort of like whatever that hour that you would usually use to do strength training in, it's now like use that to do something enjoyable and active. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if, if you are a 5K jogger, I'm pretty sure that, that's not going to yeah, be a, a not, huge problem. Not an issue. For me, though, like, like time and just willpower is the thing. I mean, like, I really don't like doing steady state cardio. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? Like, it's just it's not my thing because I just feel like the mental game for me is just the difficult part. Like, I've just been like, oh, I have to put up with this. Um, uh, whereas, you know, hits, I can really get behind because it's there. I'm fully focused. I'm fully engaged. And like, it's the same thing as doing the everything to failure, one set type strength training. And it's like, you're done in 15 to 20 minutes, right? And you are knackered. I did a, a hit session. I've been doing um, a sort of boxing oriented uh, ones lately, um, where I sort of just do like a sort of kickboxing style sparring with a bag. But it's like, you know, I'm sort of just dodging and weaving and throwing the odd jab for the rest intervals. And then for the 20 seconds, I'm trying to kill that bag using every you know uh, tool at my disposal be it kicks or elbow strikes or whatever i mean i probably look like a, a raving lunatic to everyone else who's doing the little jab stuff the entire time um but yeah uh, so i've been doing that and like that it's pretty intense um and it takes a toll on the body in terms of like the the, the muscle because punching throwing a hard punch or a kick actually recruits quite a bit of muscle right yeah so I've, I've actually found like the muscle soreness was the was the main thing delayed onset muscle soreness today i went and did a, a watt bike session i think it's actually a brand watt bike the gist of it is like it's like a an elliptical type bicycle but you have like arm bars as well that are connected to the same mechanism and so you can push your arms back and forth and cycle and it's all connected up to this big like fan essentially that creates resistance and so the point being is you just like using the main your all your appendages together to like produce as much energy that's the, the term what bike um, as possible and man it's a different ball game i did five intervals of of those 20 second bursts with 130 breaks in between and I mean, by the time I got to the third one, I was already like, oh my God, what have I done? I'm going to make myself sick. <laughs> by the time I was done, I mean, I had to take like a five minute cool down just so I didn't pass out because my my blood was flowing. 15, 15 minutes later, I had left the gym. I had walked back home and I got into the apartment. And I was like, oh my God, I have to sit down. I'm, I'm like still on the edge of passing out. And it took me like another 10 minutes after that before I had like the energy and the just like composure to go and shower. I mean, it was a whole nother ball game, right? Like the hits is incredibly effective at just getting you knackered. I mean, like this is the equivalent of me doing a like 15K run, I presume, because I've never done a 15K run before. <laughs> I, I max out at five and I'm just like, I'm, I'm too bored. But yeah, the, the, one, of, one of my most successful uh, sort of medium distance for other athletes or long distance for me runs uh, was listening to the, the Joe Rogan episode with Elon Musk where he where he smokes the joint, the, the the famous and highly memed one, and I was just so into the podcast, and it was a beautiful sunny day. Um, oh, lovely. I was, oh yeah, I was out uh, out out by my my family place, so it was like you know far away from the city, and I just I was just so focused on the podcast, and like next thing my phone's like going, oh you reached your goal of five kilometers, and I just had no idea I'd been running, but that's the only time running's ever been pleasant ever in the history of humanity. Yeah. Yeah, the rest of the history of humanity. The rest of the time, I just want to get in yeah. there and get done. Generally, it's after work as well. So, like, my will, I've got like 15 minutes of willpower left, and I need to just get there and, and get it over with. So, yeah, I'm all about the, the short bursts. But now I'm, I'm wondering, like, how best to stack the, the cardiovascular aspect with the strength mm. training. And in terms of, like, not like, overworking myself, but also getting a bit of variety in for range of motion purposes and for 
just not getting bored as well. I think it's it's obviously going to be something where I think applying the, the mental model of sometimes the way to get more of what you want is to restrict yourself instead of adding in more things. Okay. And so, you know, if you hit some sort of plateau or you're finding yourself fatigued um, or you're finding you're, you're not increasing in strength or fitness, ask yourself, what could I actually cut out here? You know, if I could only do two exercises yeah. a week, what would I end up doing? And, and, you know, you could just test that out for two weeks, yeah. three weeks and see, do your energy levels go up? It's a worthwhile experiment to run because you might just be in that phase where you actually need more recovery time between sessions and doing that. Yeah finally gives you the sort of latency to go back to more intense training. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing for me was that I just got to the point where I had refined my workout to this 20-minute destroyer of muscle. Because I, I was literally like reading papers and I was just doing as much research as I could. I got very into it and the science behind it. And I had like the nutrition thing pretty figured out and the, the workout pretty figured out. But the problem was I would just go on like a Monday and be like, cool, I'm going to do two big workouts this week and maybe some jogging on the other days. And just like, I'd go on the Monday, destroy myself, be hobbling around for the rest of the week, and just eventually just couldn't keep that up because I my, I would always be like, oh, I'm too tired today. The um, acrasia is much harder to fight when you don't do the thing as often and when the thing is much harder. And so I engineered this thing that was incredibly intense what were the exercises you were doing out of interest? I mean, I literally keep it as simple as possible. So it's it's the same sort of big five type setup, except it's all with compound lifts. And I don't do shoulder press because what I found is that I was over de developing the anterior part of the deltoid muscle because I was always doing shoulder press. And I couldn't understand why my shoulders were not growing, especially when I initially started, like everything else was. And it was because you get no activation of the lateral deltoid, which is what gives your shoulder the, the shape that is like aesthetically appeasing and and just makes you look good in clothing and stuff. And so I was like, okay, cool. I'll just drop the press and do the lateral raises. And so I, I, I sub that in. So that's the, like pretty much the lightest thing. I do that to warm up. So it's just like really slow raises with barbells. Laterally, there's some really good like YouTube tutorials on how to get the optimal activation for that. So I'll usually start with that. Then I'll go over and probably do squats next. So just, yeah, really heavy squats. Then I will go do pull-ups. And I, I found a way of doing pull-ups. I've never managed to do more than three. <laughs> right? I, I've just found the, made the pull-ups so on. So if you imagine just hanging from a bar, you do that, except now engage your back and your shoulders just enough so that you're not hanging. You're just at like one step up from that. So it's like the, the very like first motion if you were doing a dead hang pull-up. So that's the, that's the extent that I stop at. So I start by hanging like that for a little while, like 15, 20 seconds. So I'm already testing the grip strength here. It's already like under load. Then I go and do as slow as I possibly can up and down, highly controlled. The rest of the body is like totally motionless. You know, there's no swinging or anything going on here. And on the way down, you stop halfway and you pause for a, a second and then carry on going down. Never been able to do more than three. The other thing is that you just, on, on the last one, you on your way down, you just make it extra long and slow because you can feel that you're done. And then when it comes to like getting yourself up from the almost dead hang again, you just can't because that's the hardest part, right? And it's like on that third one on the way down, you're like, this, this is it. You can feel, you, you, you can't even stop your body from just falling anymore. So that's a really good one. I actually sometimes throw in like heavily weighted lunges because that's really good at getting the hamstrings activated, I've found. Hamstring is like one thing that's like no fun for me to work in isolation. But when I do the lunges, it's nice because I get really good activation on like my glutes and my core as well because you're having to stabilize. So I'll usually do that like the same way you would put a bar on your back for doing a back squat. You would do that and then do lunges. I haven't seen very many other people recommend that. Um, and I've done it with kettlebells in the past before. But yeah, so that's quite a good one. Then I'll go to like deadlift. And then as I'm sort of like... It's, that's pretty tiring. Um, I'll then go and do dips and um, low row in whatever order equipment is freed up. And I'm feeling bench press. I usually do the bench press with dumbbells, actually, because I feel like it activates my 
chest more. Whereas if I do it with the bar, it feels like my triceps burn out before before my chest. But that may just be like my technique being suboptimal. I think that's everything. I may be forgetting like one or two things. And occasionally I'll just throw in something extra or leave one thing out if I've got like something that's sore or whatever. But that's just the rough template. And that, that kills me. Everything's to failure. Everything's slow. Everything's like mostly constantly under load. Yeah, so that's um, that's what I've just found is like works for me. It's pretty quick, easy to do. Yeah, and then if I have a sauna available, jumping in the sauna after that apparently is like extremely good for you. I think it's uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick goes into like great detail about the, the benefits of, of a sauna post-workout. And I believe it's to do with, is it heat, heat shock protein? I heat say? shock protein, yeah, yeah. Is the, is the protein that's activated as a result of, of the heat exposure. Um, and it's apparently very useful in the hypertrophy cause um, and a whole bunch of other metabolic benefits. But it, I mean, that part's quite grueling. And you also have to be pretty careful with the sauna thing because you can find yourself getting like really close to, to fainting sometimes if you've done a heavy workout and you're in a hot sauna afterwards. So it, it requires a bit of monitoring. Yeah, it definitely is worth being a bit cautious. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, speaking of which, sir, uh, are you just about ready to wrap this up? I think so, yeah. All right, excellent. Cool, it's been an interesting chat. That was a different one, folks. Uh, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please get in touch and share your thoughts. You can email us at podtangent at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter. Our handle is at podtangent. And for more information, as well as show notes for this and other episodes, our website is podtangent.com. If you like the show, the two biggest things you can do to help us out would be recommending it to a friend you think might like it, or rating and reviewing on iTunes. These both make a disproportionate impact on the course of the show, and we'd really, really appreciate it. We have both loved having these discussions, and we're looking forward to having many more. So thank you for listening. Your support and listenership are really, really appreciated. Until next time. Achoo!